When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. Welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I'm Liv, your host and lover of Odysseus, even though he's pretty bad, just not as bad as most other men in mythology. And speaking of, we're back, and this time, I promise there will be bloodshed. Like I said last week, even I keep expecting it to finally happen, and then Homer has so many other crazy things to say. The man is wordy as hell, but don't we love him anyway? 
Before we delve back into the Odyssey, first, I wanted to mention that today's episode is extra, extra violent. I haven't warned you before other episodes, but maybe I should have? Listener discretion very much advised. And I just want to let you know that next week, there will be a very special episode. You should have heard, and if you haven't, listen, because I guested on a recent episode of the podcast Fuckboys of Lit, where Emily Edwards and I discuss the madness and maniacal monsters (laughs) that are in Jane Eyre. It was incredibly fun, and even if it's not classics related, I think many, if not most of you, will still really enjoy it. So please go subscribe to her show and listen to that episode. When Emily and I recorded that, though, we recorded a crossover episode between our two shows. We had a really interesting and entertaining conversation on none other than the book Circe by Madeline Miller. I know all of you really love that, so I hope you'll listen to that special episode. It will also give you a taste as to how fun our episode on Jane Eyre was, so tune in to this feed next week for that special episode, and it's only a coincidence, not really, that that episode is coming out when I'm in Toronto, so... Thank you to Emily for helping me have an episode to release when I'm away, since I have absolutely zero time to prep a whole extra episode. Liv, how do you manage to find the time to talk about how busy you are in every episode? Anyway, without further distraction, where did we last leave my main man? There isn't much need to recap the most recent escapades of Odysseus, other than to say that Odysseus, Telemachus, and the suitors have been feasting, and the resident prophet has told them something incredibly important. The prophet essentially forecasts the bloodshed that's about to take place. But of course, this is a story, and it must have suspense and foreshadowing, so the suitors are sufficiently blasé about the whole prediction. Tension levels are rising inside that palace of Ithaca. This is episode 59, Odysseus and a Sea of Suitors' Blood, The Odyssey, Part 12. Sing muses of the anger of Odysseus. Athena is in for the excitement. She's watching all of this influencing minds and actions. But it can't move too quickly. She wants to draw it out. So she puts into Penelope's mind the idea for a competition. Penelope had been thinking about proposing this, for the suitors, to determine who would finally get to marry her, and Athena makes it a reality. The competition hinges on the bow and arrows of Odysseus, but not just any. There's a set that's been hidden safely away all the time he's been gone. It has a story. It was gifted to Odysseus long before he left Ithaca, by a man who has died, though, before Odysseus left. The sentimentality of the set led him to leave it behind when he left Ithaca for Troy. I think it's a safe assumption that it's the only one of his weapons still residing in the palace and holds a special place within Penelope. She travels through the palace, carefully removing these pieces from where they've been stored, and she's incredibly emotional as she does. Finally, though, she pulls herself together and returns to the suitors with the bow and arrow. She's wearing a veil to hide her face as she speaks with the suitors, and she's blunt. You keep coming to my house, eating and drinking everything, she tells them. You're abusing the hospitality of a man who's been gone from his home too long. It's no secret, you're here for me, I'm the prize. And if I'm the prize, she says, then we'll hold a contest. This bow belonged to Odysseus, 
If any one of you can hold it tightly, string it with ease, and shoot through 12 axes, then I will marry that man and finally leave my beautiful home in Ithaca. Penelope and Eumaeus set up the twelve axes, lined up neatly with the holes in them just so, so that an arrow, if shot with incredible accuracy, will make it through them all. Through tears, Eumaeus does this. He knows the significance, and as you remember, he's weirdly attached to Penelope and Odysseus for a man who's forced to work for them for no compensation, as you know, a slave. In any event, Eumaeus does seem to care. He's emotional but he sets up the axes as Penelope asks of him. As Eumaeus sets up the axes in preparation for this contest that Penelope has decided to hold, Antinous, one of the worst of the suitors, tries to recommend himself to her. He calls out to the other suitors, reprimanding them for how they've treated her, how they've made her cry. Because yeah, it's definitely not that you're one of the worst of them, dude. Then he turns on it, though, instead telling Penelope that she should eat in silence, and if she's going to keep crying, she should go outside. Because again, he's a super nice dude who definitely isn't about to be killed in a most violent manner. This contest will be difficult, he says to the suitors. I saw Odysseus once, and I'll never forget him. Not one of us is as good as him. Oh, Homer is really setting things up for us. And he isn't subtle, because the next stanza is basically an aside from the omniscient narrator, which almost never happens, saying that Antinous hopes he'll be the first one to compete in the contest, but really, he'll be the first one with one of Odysseus's arrows in his face. It's Telemachus's turn to speak, and he chooses to praise his mother as he confronts the suitors about the contest. He reminds them what the stakes are, that his mother has agreed to marry the winner, but he also points out how incredible she is. She's unlike anyone else, he says. You know her worth, he tells them. So, I will take part in the contest. If I can succeed in it, then I'll know that I'm enough for my mother to leave me, and that I'm enough to carry my father's arms. So, Telemachus stands up straight, he throws off his cloak and makes sure everything is set up for the contest, Then he tries to string the bow like his father. He tries three times, but he can't get it. He's nervous, trembling. He's not Odysseus. He's about to try again because he's determined, but from across the room, Odysseus shakes his head, indicating that this isn't part of the plan. Telemachus needs to stop trying. Ugh, he says. For real, ugh is in the translation. (laughs) I guess I'm just too weak. I'm not yet experienced enough. I'm too young. You all are stronger, he says to the suitors. You try, and then we can just end this. Telemachus sets the bow and arrow down and goes back to sit at the table, where he might watch the suitors attempt to prove themselves even a fraction as talented as his father. And with that, the suitors begin to take their turns at the bow. First up is a man named Leodes, who spent his time hiding in the back corner, we're told. He didn't partake in the bullying, apparently. He fails at stringing the bow. And once he's failed, he speaks to the group, telling someone else to have a turn, but that this bow, he says, will take away the courage and even the lives of many men. 
At this, Antinous laughs. He mocks Laodice for what he's just said, claiming the bow will take lives just because he can't string it. He asks Melanthius, the goat herd, to put a chair by the fire and bring some fat so they can warm and grease the bow and keep trying. I wish I understood how grease would help a bow and arrow. Sounds gross and messy, but what do I know? Melanthius does this. They do to the bow whatever it is Antinous proposed with the fire and the fat, but it doesn't work. More men try and fail to string the bow. While men continue trying to string it, Odysseus follows the swine herd and the cow herd outside the palace, where he, not so subtly, asks them what they would do if, suddenly, Odysseus appeared here. Would they be with him, or would they be with the suitors, he asks. Both are very vehemently with Odysseus and against the suitors. They pray to the gods right there that he'll be brought home so they can show him how much they would be with him in this fight against the suitors. This is enough for Odysseus, and finally, he reveals to people other than Telemachus that he has indeed returned home, and he's here to fuck the suitors up. He provides the two with the proof they need, his scar, to believe it is truly their master Odysseus returned home after these long twenty years. (gasps) And they're thrilled. They're over the fucking moon. There's lots of hugging and kissing, and oh, how happy everyone is. Before Odysseus puts a stop to the affection, he's got work to do. Stop, he says. We can't let anyone from inside see us and give it away. Go back in, one at a time, so as not to arouse suspicions. I have a plan, he tells them. I'll give you a sign. When the suitors refuse to let me participate in the contest, then you, Eumaeus, will simply bring me the bow and arrow. Just put them directly into my hands. Then he asks, direct the women to close up the entrance so no one can escape and hide away in their own rooms. If they hear screams, they mustn't leave their rooms. Felicius, he says to the cowherd, giving him a name that we'll use only once or twice, you secure the gates. There can be no means of escaping the palace when things begin. With the plan settled, Odysseus returns to the palace where the suitors are still trying to string the bow. The other men follow, one at a time, unsuspiciously, just as planned. Eurymachus, one of those bad suitors, he has the bow now. He's warming it by the fire in an attempt to make it easier to string. But even still, he can't do it. He becomes angry, furious even, that he's failing at this after vying for Penelope's affections for so long. He starts yelling to the other suitors about how bad this is for him, how disastrous. It isn't even the marriage I really care about, he says. There are plenty of other women. It's that none of us can prove ourselves as strong as Odysseus. We're all weaker than that old king of Ithaca. We're a disgrace. This will follow us for years, he says. No, Eurymachus, don't worry, Antinous tells him. It won't be that way, because we shouldn't even be stringing a bow today, after all. 
Of course, it's a feast day for Apollo. Obviously, it would be wrong for us to string a bow today. He tells everyone as if it's so obvious. And of course, they can't continue with the contest. No, not today. It's just a coincidence that no one can fucking do it. No, he says to the suitors. We'll just leave this all set up. No one will take it down. And instead, we'll just have a nice feast. We won't worry about stringing the bow, which we all obviously can. And definitely this isn't a major deflection from the insane levels of failure we're all experiencing. In the morning, Antinous says, we'll sacrifice to Apollo, god of archery, and then we'll try again and easily finish up this contest. And simple as that, the contest appears to have ended and everyone pretends they didn't just fail miserably at the thing they agreed would be the decider in Penelope's fate. Everyone except Odysseus. Our beloved, sneaky Odysseus is working out the best way to keep things moving. Listen to me, he calls out to the suitors. Eurymachus and Antinous, I'm speaking mostly to you both, since you had such good insights just now. In the morning, Apollo will decide the victor, and he will be able to string the bow. But for now, give it to me, so I can just test my old strength, see how much of it comes back to me after all these years of homelessness and poverty. Of course, the suitors don't take to this idea. They're worried he's going to string the bow, and wouldn't they look like enormous assholes if he did? Don't be an idiot, Antinous says, though as usual I'm paraphrasing. Aren't you happy enough that we've let you stay here, that we've let you eat and listen to us talk? The wine we've let you drink has made you drunk. He follows this statement by recalling a guy who went crazy from drinking too much wine and started a war with the centaurs. So maybe you've drank too much wine. He says all this to Odysseus in a not super coherent kind of way, so I think maybe Antinous is the one who's had too much wine. But Antinous goes on. It would be far worse for you if you did string that bow, he tells the man who he doesn't know is Odysseus. We wouldn't treat you kindly, Antinous says. We'd send you off in a ship to a man they call the king of cruelty. No, he continues. Just go sit quietly and keep drinking that wine. But, though you couldn't tell based on the last pages and pages and pages, Penelope's in the room. That's right. She's been here all along, watching the suitors fail miserably because they're idiot assholes. Antinous, Penelope says with, I imagine, quite the judgmental tone, that's not how we treat guests of the palace. This man is a specific guest of Telemachus, and you have no right to disrespect him in this way. She continues, do you really think if this stranger can string the bow, I'll just go off and marry him? Or that he even wants that? She's really making fun of Antinous now. No, she says. He's not even thinking of that. He just wants to test his strength. The suitors take this in, and Eurymachus responds. Sure, he says. It's unlikely that that's what he's planning by asking to string the bow. But we'd feel pretty stupid if someone were to call us weak for courting you, only to have a beggar come in and be able to string the bow that we're unable to. Think of what people would say. I kind of respect Eurymachus for this. He's not trying to hide the issue here. It'd be fucking embarrassing if this man could string the bow after they couldn't, even though they'd somewhat convince themselves it's all fine because tomorrow Apollo will help them. I'm sure he will. With a sneer, Penelope says, Eurymachus, you've already lost all your dignity. You lost it when you spent years and years wasting the riches of my husband, King Odysseus. What does this change? 
Go on, she says. Give him the bow. Let's see what he can do. If he strings it, with the help of Apollo, I'll give him some nice clothes, a sword, whatever he needs to get him where he wants to go. And so Penelope's proposed this, that they allow this strange man to string the bow if he's able. She sort of forced the suitor's hands. They'll look like even bigger idiots now if they refuse her. But Telemachus is watching and listening, and he tells his mother, No, no one has more right than me to give or refuse this bow. No, he says, it's my business. Go upstairs and do some weaving. And bring your girls with you, he tells her. This is the work of men, he says. I'm the one with the power in the house. Which, you know, is obviously dumb because Penelope's way smarter than her son, and she's been running shit just fine while he grew up and into an adult. But whatever, right now. He's trying to protect his mom because of what is, well, about to go down. So Penelope goes to her room. There she mourns for Odysseus before finally falling asleep with the help of Athena. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. 
Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Meanwhile, back in the hall where the suitors are feasting alongside Telemachus and the disguised Odysseus, the swineherd, Eumaeus, picks up the bow. The suitors are immediately outraged. Dirty pig man, they call him. What are you doing? Are you crazy? Eumaeus is thrown. He's intimidated. He tries putting back the bow, just down. He tries putting the bow back down to avoid the anger of the suitors, but Telemachus stops him. No, he says. Keep going. Pick up that bow. You have to choose which master to obey. Now, speaking almost to himself, Telemachus exclaims how much he wishes he were equal in strength to these men who've invaded his home these long years. If I could, he says, I'd throw them out of my house and make them pay. But this isn't a Shakespearean soliloquy. No, the suitors hear this and they only find it funny. They laugh at Telemachus, which also means they're distracted. Eumaeus walks the bow over to Odysseus and hands it to him. Once that's done, he proceeds with the rest of the plan. Eumaeus goes to Eurycleia, the woman they know is on their side, and tells her she must lock everything up and keep the women in their rooms. The rest proceeds as planned. Once he knows everything is secure, everything is proceeding like he directed, Odysseus finds himself holding his own bow. He turns it over in his hands, examining it. Has it been damaged in his absence? The suitors watch this. They're paying close attention. He's looking at it as if he's an expert, they say to each other. He doesn't look out of place or confused about what to do with it. Maybe he had a similar one back at home, they ask themselves. One suitor adds that he hopes the man's future matches how well he strings this bow. Odysseus has tricked them. He's done it, after all this planning. After examining it carefully, admiring his bow, something he loved so well and hadn't seen in so long, he strings it. It's easy. Doesn't take him any time at all. It's muscle memory. He holds it in his hands and plucks the string. It makes a sound, like birdsong. The suitors are not psyched, more like horrified, terrified, pretty troubled by the whole thing, and rightly so. Outside, thunder sounds, Zeus making himself known. Without a word, this dirty, homeless stranger the suitors have been making fun of for days and nights, but who has just, with ease, strung the bow none of them could string— picks up an arrow, and fits it in the bow. Still sitting in his chair, still without a word, 
Odysseus takes careful aim, pulls back, and lets loose the arrow. It flies through the lined-up axes with a satisfying whooshing sound before hitting the other side exactly where intended. Finally, he speaks to Telemachus. Your guest is making you look good, he says. I hit all the targets and strung the bow without issue. I'm still strong, despite what the suitors have said. It's time to feast now, and we'll celebrate later. Odysseus gives Telemachus a signal. He raises his eyebrows. At that, Telemachus straps on his sword, grabs his spear, and goes to stand next to Odysseus, his father. In an instant, Odysseus leaps up, tears off his clothes, leaving himself naked and angry. More threatening in ancient times than it would be now, I think. With a sneer, Odysseus tells the suitors that, quote, playtime is over. I'll take another shot, he says, at another target no one has hit. And he aims his arrow at Antinous. The man sits there, about to raise his goblet of wine to his mouth to drink. Odysseus had moved so quickly, none of the suitors had even had a chance to realize what was happening. So before Antinous can give a thought to what's about to happen, Odysseus lets his arrow fly and it pierces Antinous through the throat. Antinous falls forward, his wine goblet falling from his hand with a clatter, wine and blood spraying over everything. The blood quickly covers up the wine, there's far more of it, and it gushes from Antinous's gaping neck wound. This gets the suitors' attention, and they all jump up from their seats, looking fruitlessly for their weapons, but they aren't there. They've been hidden, locked tightly away. They call out, What have you done? You'll pay for this, they say. You'll die. But Odysseus isn't worried. They don't threaten him at all dogs, he calls out to them. Did you really think I'd never return home? That I died so long ago in Troy? You thought you had the right to come to my home and abuse my wife and my son, wasting our food and our wine, all the while I've been alive. You didn't fear the gods when you should have. You thought no one would ever return to take revenge for what you've done. But now, it's all over. They realize now who's in front of them. The suitors all become very pale. They look around, still trying to find their weapons, or at least a way out. But they aren't there, and there isn't a way out. Finally, shakily, Eurymachus speaks. If it really is you, Odysseus, then you're right. I completely agree. The Greeks have treated you very badly. They've done awful things to your home. But look, the man responsible is dead, he points towards Antinous. It was all his idea all along. He didn't even really want to marry Penelope. He wanted to lie in wait and kill Telemachus, your son. He wanted to kill him and take the throne for himself. But look, he's dead. You've killed him and you had every right. But please, spare the rest of us. Have mercy. We'll pay you back for all we've eaten and drank here. We'll pay you in gold and bronze. Eurymachus is shaking. He's trying to get himself and the suitors out of this, but he's not very convincing. Odysseus sees right through his complete and utter bullshit. 
Even if you gave me everything you have and everything you're entitled to in the world, it wouldn't stop me from killing you. No, I'll pay you back for what you've done. At this, Eurymachus draws his sword, because I guess they still had their swords on them. It was all their other weapons that were hidden, or maybe Homer is bad at continuity. Either way, they've got swords now. Eurymachus draws his sword and prepares to attack Odysseus, but before he can even move, he's been shot through the liver, and he's on the ground, bleeding heavily. Next, Amphinomus attacks Odysseus. He too draws his sword, but Telemachus jumps in and thrusts his spear through Amphinomus from behind. It goes through his back and out his chest. Flesh and blood fly. Telemachus leaves his spear in Amphinomus. He's afraid he'll be attacked from behind. Instead, he tells his father that he'll run and grab them more weapons and shields. Telemachus returns with armor and weapons, and they throw them on quickly. Eumaeus and the cowherd, whose name I often forget, and Homer rarely says, they too have armor and weapons to fight the suitors. Odysseus continues shooting at them with arrows until finally he runs out and has to set down his bow. Meanwhile, that shitty goat herd, Melanthius, who insulted Odysseus a while back, he's sided with the suitors. He tells them where not to go when they try to escape, and he goes to get them weapons and protection from the room where Telemachus had stored them. Suddenly, the stakes are far higher. Odysseus can see that the suitors have been given weapons and armor, and they're now far more threatening than they were only moments ago. Eumaeus, though, sees the goat herd going back to grab more, and he asks Odysseus how he should handle the man. Go. String him from the rafters and torture him for hours before he finally dies, Odysseus tells Eumaeus, who is somehow not entirely terrified by this answer. I mean, my god, that's troubling. What a suggestion. Came to him so quickly. Eumaeus and the cowherd run off to do exactly that, again, seemingly untroubled. They stretch him up high above the ground, leave him there to suffer while they run back to continue helping Odysseus and Telemachus. Meanwhile, Mentor, the man who Athena disguises herself as, appears before Odysseus. He knows who's in front of him, though. He addresses her as Mentor, but he knows it's Athena. He calls to her to help him. But the suitors, they too see Mentor, though they have no idea who she really is. They call out, asking Mentor to help them fight against Odysseus. They threaten him, who's really Athena, threaten her with violence against her and her family should she not help them. This is probably not the best way of addressing someone who is Athena in disguise. Athena takes her anger out on Odysseus, though, basically telling him he's not doing enough, not killing them fast enough, not being quite violent enough. She calls him to her side to fight the suitors before flying up into the rafters as a bird. Anyway, she's not actually being that helpful. The suitors, the bravest and strongest of them, keep coming at Odysseus, Telemachus, and the other men, but they are killed with ease. Their weapons barely touch Odysseus and Telemachus. Athena is at least helping them there. Meanwhile, the weapons on Odysseus's side are always hitting their targets. The halls of the palace of Ithaca are full of screams and blood. The suitors run in all directions, knowing now there's a god on Odysseus's side. They run for their lives, but Odysseus and Telemachus get them with spears and swords. Blood flies and pours from wounds. The floor is sticky with it, the room thick with the smell of it and the smell of the suitor's fear. 
with Telemachus vouching for them, Odysseus spares the lives of the poet who sang to the suitors every night. He did this against his own will. And of Medon, the boy who served the suitors, and who looked after Telemachus when he was young, there to be spared. It's not much longer before Odysseus finds himself searching for survivors, those left still to kill. Bodies lie strewn about on the floor at odd angles, but it doesn't appear that anyone is left living. Odysseus wishes to see Eurycleia now, now that he's sure that all the suitors are dead. Telemachus goes to get her. When she sees Odysseus in the room, he's standing amongst the bodies, his own covered in their blood, and only a scratch or two of his own. Don't mourn for these men, he tells her, and don't be too excited either. They're dead, that's all. Now, he says, tell me about the women who have been loyal to me and Penelope, loyal to this palace, and who have sided with the suitors, who've made their lives easier as they abused Penelope. Eurycleia tells him the twelve of the fifty slave girls in the house had dishonored him and his household. They ignored her and Penelope, even Telemachus. She goes to get them when Odysseus asks her, bringing them to the hall to face him and his wrath. Before they arrive, though, Odysseus calls out to Telemachus and the other two men. We must start moving the bodies, he tells them. The girls coming with Eurycleia will help us. They will clean the hall. They will clean every drop of blood from the floors and the furniture, he says. And when they're done, he tells Telemachus and the other men, take them out back, outside the palace, and kill them. Kill them so they forget what the suitors and Aphrodite made them do. They have plans for Melanthius, too, the treacherous goatherd. They take him outside, and they cut off his nose and then his ears. They tear off his genitals and feed them to the dogs. For a moment they think this is enough, but it isn't, so they cut off his hands and feet before washing the blood off their own. Back inside the palace, blood cleaned from every surface, Odysseus asks Eurycleia to help him purify the room of what he's just done. He wants it as pure as it can be before he brings Penelope in, before he tells her who he is and what he's done. So Eurycleia does as he asks. She brings him fire and sulfur, the cures to this type of evil. Odysseus proceeds to fumigate the palace while Eurycleia goes to call on Penelope and her loyal slave girls. Well, friends, it's done. Odysseus has killed the suitors, and he only did it in the most bloody and violent way you can imagine. Is he still the good guy? I mean, he's supposed to be, but that wasn't great. I mean, I suppose it's a normal way to handle things in ancient Greece. But holy moly. Anyway, I fucking love the Odyssey. I'm so glad we've made it to this point. But there will only be one episode left. (laughs) which honestly breaks my heart into a thousand pieces. I love covering this story. It's so much fun. So much more fun than the Iliad, let's be honest. But also, it's just way easier to write this 
podcast when I have the Odyssey to refer to. It's like hours and hours and hours less time to prepare. Anyway, not to scare you, but I'm so dreading having to come up with full-length episodes without the Odyssey. We'll cover the Aeneid eventually, so don't worry, but I'll give us a little break between epics. Godly breather. Thankfully, so many of you have donated books for me, especially the ones with magic and witchcraft. I'm looking forward to researching some episodes on that. Anyway, I'm just rambling now. This episode is long enough. It's 5,000 words, if you're wondering what I do with my Sunday mornings. Before I go, quick reminder that if you're in the Toronto area, maybe you want to come talk mythology, ask me questions, generally just hang with a bunch of fellow nerds in the beautiful Trinity Bellwoods Park. If so, head to my Facebook, facebook.com slash mythsbaby, and respond to the event invite. It's Saturday, the 21st. You're all the best. I'm Liv, and I love this shit, and Odysseus, even when he's killing everyone. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. 
Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.